Uh, everybody should know him by now, so I'm not going to give too much of an introduction other than standing up here and singing next to him. I'm reminded that one of the things that, you know, pa- uh, pastors and professors are usually multidimensional, not multi-personality, multidimensional in their personality, although maybe maybe hence is multi-person personality. But anyway... Um, one of the things you probably won't ever learn about Wayne House unless I tell you is he does a dynamite impersonation of John Denver. <laughs> and maybe if we get him kind of riled up a little bit, we might, <laughs> we, we, might, we might see that. You never, never know. Let me fix your microphone, Wayne, and then you can uh, take over. Well, life on a farm is kind of, Okay, that's good. I noticed that Robbie was wearing sho- uh, boots today, but I, I meant to say shoes since he was barefoot yesterday. There it is. <clears throat> well, I am glad to be here this morning. I hope you are. We uh, have some great stuff to talk about. Now, the first thing I'm going to talk about just hold in there, you know, work with me, and we'll try to work it out. Because Robbie wanted me to try to expose to you uh, some of the thinking of Edie Hirsch. And that's the first portion of what I'm going to do. But you should know that it is not necessarily uh, easy, okay? Uh, like I said, I worked through this book three times before I really grabbed it and understood it very well. Because it's a very complicated technical work, which doesn't mean that it's anything wrong with it. It says that the ideas are so profound sometimes, and it revolutionized my way of thinking about hermeneutics. So uh, validity and interpretation, it's out of print now, interestingly enough. It's gone through 20, 30 printings, I don't know. But uh, we were able to get E.D. Hurst, who's an an unbelieving Jew, to write a foreword to this book dedicated to one of my mentors, Elliot Johnson at Dallas Seminary, from whom I took a doctoral course in hermeneutics, uh, he actually wrote a foreword to a book on theology, <laughs> which I thought was fascinating. Uh, I should tell you that this book is on sale in the room. Uh, drop the price. It's just 25 even. Put the money in the little container there. I've already purchased all these, so we can be sure and have them available, and you can just put the cash in and pick this up. It's packed full of stuff on understanding scripture how do you do it so you may want to look at that uh, and also to mention to you again michael flotch's book on he will reign forever uh, one of the best works that i have ever read i've read it very carefully and being the publisher i read through it before we published it <laughs> but read it very carefully was excited about the book and doing it because he is so clear in how he develops everything it's just phenomenal so it is selling off the off the stands. I can't keep it. So anyway, <clears throat> that's there. Well, is this up yet? Uh, let me try this and see if it works. Okay, good. It does. So I'll come back to this. <clears throat> now I go to what time? 
till noon. Now, that's easy to remember. I really get to noon? I can't even remember that. Yesterday I thought I was out of time. Okay, till noon I can handle it. Are you serious? <laughs> 20 till 9, so I quit it. At ten, at what is ten o'clock? I quit. At nine forty-five, I just started. I know, but I have an hour and a half. Okay, so I just want to know when to quit, so I can quit about close to t- nine fifty. That's all I need. I can look. All right, so let's move and go through this together: uh, meaning and significance in relationship to hermeneutics. We're going to talk about a philosophy of meaning first, and uh, if you want to look along with me, uh, we're talking about the concepts of E.D. Hirsch here at this point. Philosophy of meaning. What does it, what does it mean? In reference to the word meaning, what is meaning when we say meaning? And Hirsch uses a term about type meaning, the type meaning of a text. What is meaning? Hirsch says it's that which is represented by a text. It is what the author meant by his use of a particular sign or sequence. It is what the signs represent. You do realize that every one of us speaking English, or if we were speaking Spanish or Russian or Hebrew or whatever, we have different signs, don't we? Our words are signs that we construct together to say something. But remember, each of these words in themselves are valuable. They are components of a meaning and that statement we make when we finish all those words together now I'm doing it right now I haven't planned these words I'm saying right now how is it that my mind is communicating somehow to me so that I'm putting these things together and they make sense I hope you know I'm not having to think about this not like writing right now I'm communicating ideas and I'm using individual little signs in organization structure to convey an idea, right? And we do this naturally, right? We don't think a lot about this. And so the fact is when we make our signs and put them together and instruct it, we have a meaning. So what does the meaning mean and how do we get to that? That's what he's discussing here. Now, verbal meaning then is whatever someone has willed to convey by a particular sequence of linguistic signs, all these words I've used, in a structure. If I took all these words and just sort of put them all together any way I wanted to, there would be no communication, would there? If I just took ten words and just put them in any order I wanted, there would not be a lot of understanding, right? There would be no meaning expressed. So you have to take these linguistic signs we call words, structure them in such a way as to be understood to convey a meaning. Now, And we do it by these linguistic signs. Now, let me give you an illustration of the idea of type meaning. If you look at a bush, that doesn't show up very well. Traits of a bush. Traits is a word that refers to particulars underneath the questions of meaning. Every meaning has traits, components that convey ideas. In and of themselves, they don't express the meaning. But put together, they do. So, for example, if I look at, in this situation right here, if you look over here, traits of a book, what does a bush have? A bush has leaves, right? 
A bush has form and substance. It has color and it's a plant, has roots, has branches. And if I were a tree doctor, I could give you more. The point of it is that the bush, as we think of as a symbol, we, don't, we use that word bush, right? We could have called it an elephant. If everybody agreed that we'll call that green thing an elephant, it would be an elephant. We just agreed to the word bush, right? These are all very important concepts. By the way, they explain the doctrine of the Trinity if I had enough time. Seriously, it they, they really does. I use this illustration, but that's another subject. So the fact is you have leaves and forms of all these elements that make a bush. And so every time we see a bush, we can call it a bush, and we know it's not a cup of coffee. All right? But what about this? This also is traits of a tree. It also has leaves and form and substance and color and plant and roots and branches. So why is not a bush a tree or a tree a bush? They're both green. They both have certain features that look like each other. It's the fact that a tree has an element or maybe more than one that distinguishes it from a bush. Everybody with me on that? So you commonality is not the issue. By the way, when I talk uh, tomorrow about the concept of, of uh, examples of understanding, this has a lot to do with it because the fact a lot of people see similarities as though they're sameness. It's okay to have similarities. There are lots of similarities of things. The question is not how they are like each other, but how are they dissimilar from each other? And that has a lot to do with the issue of the rapture and the second coming. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow. But if you'll look then, you'll say, well, a tree has a trunk. So every time I look at a tree, I know it's not a bush, and I look at a bush, and I know it's not a tree because it has something that distinguishes it, even if it looks similar. It has a lot to do with meaning. Now, who determines the meaning of Scripture? Well, the Scripture is a different kind of book. It has a human author and has a divine author. But if there is one meaning to a text, the human author and divine author cannot be meaning something different. That's a problem today because you have people say, well, the human author meant this, but God meant this. No, God and the human author don't mean something contrary to one another. That kind of understanding of the text just is, is not possible. You'd, you'd have to put your Bible down eventually because it wouldn't make any sense. So God and the human author mean the same thing. There is only one meaning, and that is of the author. And in this situation, a, a dual authorship, but one that does not conflict with the other authors. What God means, the, the human author means. What the human author means, God means. Now, we'll talk about there are implications different. But that's an important feature. Now, this one meaning, though, has many implications. That is, a given meaning that comes out may have components that are not necessarily stated. And we'll see that. And you know this to be true, by the way, and I'll talk more about this in a few minutes. So I'm not going to go too much into this right now. Because a meaning has components to it, and a meaning has implications that extend beyond what is necessarily spoken. It may be in the mind and not all that could be said. I could tell you about being in the elevator yesterday, and I just make a statement, and I communicate that with you, but I don't necessarily tell you everything about the elevator. 
which I could if I wanted to, that would be part of what it was to be in the elevator. So there's meaning that extends beyond merely the statement that's in the mind, but it's not spoken out or written out. How do we decide what is the right interpretation of a text? Hirsch has a statement here. He, he actually calls this banishing the author. Hirsch says that the normal way that one would understand what a text means is what the author means by it. Yet this view is questioned by many today, though it is only reasonable that a text means what the author means by it. I mean, I'm restating myself, but the point of it is people say, well, it doesn't mean that. Of course, the author who says that in a book and expects you to understand that that's what the author meant. That is, the author wants you to understand that authors can't be understood, but he wants to be understood to say that. That's, the, that's why postmodernism is imploding upon itself. It's pretty well passe now. It's not the big issue because they realize it has nonsense connected to it. It's self-refuting argument that we talked about yesterday. He says that if the author is banished, there's no one as the authority over the text. But the critic or reader, since the text must have someone's meaning. So eventually, if the author doesn't mean something, somebody has to mean something. But the problem is, the one who is, in fact, reading the text cannot control the meaning of the text. How do we decide what is right interpretation? It is, uh, it is common today, and this is an application, it's common today to hear the feminist reading of a text, or the black reading of a text, or the Marxist reading of a text or many other readings of the text, with a legitimate but different reading of the biblical text. In other words, they have a feminist reading. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? That means they read it to bring through it and siphon through it those things they agree with and to filter out those things they disagree with. That is what is meant by a reading of the text. That is, if it doesn't read the way they need it, they make it read that way. That is, they can read what the author says. If they don't like it, they can change what the author says in the interpretation. And that's what a reading of the text is today. But this would be like an amillennialist reading of the text or a Calvinist reading of the text or even a Mormon reading of the text. That is, you bring your baggage to it. Remember I talked about this yesterday? You have two ways in which you work with the text. One is called eisegesis, which I bring to the text what's not there. That's the reading here. Or I can bring out of the text what is there. That's called exegesis. Great, you guys are on top of it. The fact is, all of which there's no final meaning possible in the biblical text, so there's no determinate meaning at all. Does meaning of a text change? Now, this becomes a problem. My lecture this afternoon, I don't even when I'm on, but lecture this afternoon uh, deals with the fact of historic premillennialism, which I decided to use because it's sort of the closest to my view over against over against amillennialism and postmillennialism, but it's still wrong. You know, I'm right; they're wrong, and uh, I don't think I'll have a lot of conflicts here on that one. But the point of it is, um, one of the major problems is that they want to change the text. That is, an author says something, but what he meant is not what it means, because what he meant can't be what it means because the New Testament supposedly provides the information to correct the Old Testament author's meaning, which means it never meant that, which is really a problem. 
In response to the claim that an author may change the meaning of his or text, her says, if the work's meaning had changed instead of the author himself and his attitudes, then the author would not have needed to repudiate his meaning. See, sometimes authors come back and say, well, you know, what I said in that former book, I didn't mean that. Well, either did or didn't, but now he's repudiating a meaning because if he didn't mean that, there's no need to repudiate it. It's only if he, he actually did mean it. That's why you hear these guys on the news. Well, I know I said that this person's a bigot, but I really didn't mean that. I actually meant he's a nice guy. <laughs> well, no, he meant what he meant. He just doesn't like where he stands right now with the repercussions. So now he repudiates his former meaning because you didn't need to repudiate it if he didn't mean it. So that's how it works. Uh, so then the author would not have to repeat his meaning and could have spared himself the discomfort of a public rec recantation. No doubt the significance of the work to the author had changed a great deal, but its meaning has not changed at all. So how you relate to the meaning you had can be different. Before, I liked it. Now, I don't like it. But the meaning never changed. See? An author's original meaning cannot change, even for the author. A type, now, what is a type? We're going to talk about type meaning. I use these terms, type, traits, significance. These are terms that are vocabulary of Hirsch. A type is an entity with two decisive characteristics. First, it is an entity that has a boundary by virtue of which something belongs to it or does not. Do you understand that if something means everything, it means nothing? Do you understand the idea? If something is so broad, if a word is so broad that it can cover everything, it actually has no meaning at all. You can never know when I say the word what I mean because it can mean a thousand other things. Dictionaries, for example, do not have endless meanings to words. It means something. It may be used by this group and this group over history in a different way. I mean, my favorite hymn. It's one of my favorite Christmas hymns. I have difficulty singing anymore about my clothes. You know, that they're, they're, they're joyous because the word has altered in the culture, but it still means happy are joyous, but now the meaning has changed somewhat. Well, the word means different things, but in, I think you would understand if I talked about a Christmas carol and I talked about my clothes being gay, that I'm not referring to a sexual viewpoint, right? But the word has meaning in both contexts now. Words do alter over time. So determining the type meaning. What is meant? A type is an entity with two decisive characteristics again. The entry has a boundary. If it doesn't have a boundary, there's no communication. Does that all make sense? If there's no circle you draw around it, then you have difficulty communicating a meaning. Okay, that's Hirsch's view. The second decisive characteristic of a type is that it can always be represented by more than one instance. That is, anything that's a real meaning Hirsch says, is going to be used a number of times in different contexts by people, different, you know, writings and so forth. You can't have a private meaning. I have a word that nobody knows but me. And if I say it, what does that mean? 
Well, you, there's no context for it, right? Because it's not used but one time. I just used it now. I'll never use it again. One word. I have no idea what it means, by the way. But the fact a word has no private meaning. Words to be communicative must be public, right? Other people have to share that word with you. So if I look at, uh, if I look at this and call this a refrigerator, and you say, that's not a refrigerator, that's a mic or microphone, I would say, no, no, it means refrigerator to me. Well, maybe I can argue that, and you look at me funny, but the point of it is, it doesn't help communication at all. Because now when we talk about getting the food out of the refrigerator, we're trying to take this thing apart. <laughs> this is where the food is. Well, see, words have to be public, not private, to have value. Does that make sense with you? These are basic philosophical ideas of meaning that, that we have to hold on to. Now, a type then is an entity that has a boundary by view of which something belongs to it or not. Okay? Otherwise, it can't be shareable. Okay? Has an entity which can be represented by different instances or different contents of consciousness follows a verbal meaning is always a type since otherwise it could not be shareable. That makes sense? So when we say type meaning we mean a meaning that has a boundary around it and is not fluid that way when i see it again i'll know it right it carries certain characteristics that's how we do bible study by the way we're looking through the bible for doctrine and we see something about this again the second coming of christ in some sense the coming of christ well we've we've seen that that's different than being an elder in a church or it's it's, it's not discussing for example uh, maybe the crossing of the Red Sea by the Israelites. You may say, well, that sounds sort of foolish a little bit. now, but those are the type meanings. That is, you have ideas that flow together and ideas that are different from each other. Does that all make sense? These are type meanings. By the way, everything I'm talking about, the way, by the way, has a lot of application to law. And, and I'll be talking more about that too because these are the same kind of ideas I used when I used to teach constitutional law, about the issue of judges and how they deal with what they call precedents. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. The interpretation of text is concerned exclusively with shareable meanings. That is not private, but public that we agree to, right? We've all agreed that when I say second coming, we mean something, unless I'm in a group of our millennialists. And then our meaning breaks down. Why? Because we do not share a common idea in our meaning. For when I say second coming, I'm thinking about Christ coming in judgment and to establish his millennial kingdom. When I talk about the rapture, I'm not talking about the second coming per se. I'm talking about a prior period in which he comes for the church, not in judgment, right? That's how I understand the meaning. So the type meaning varies according to how we use it. That's why I'm going to show you tomorrow this whole idea of the confusion that comes about because of misunderstanding the idea behind the type. And we'll talk about that. Conversely, many of my shareable meanings are meanings which I am not directly thinking of at all. See, we have meanings in our head in which we do not express the entirety of. Their components, I mean, I could talk about the bush and talk about, for example, that it's green and that it has a form, and that it uh, maybe has flowers or whatever, right? But not talk about it has roots. Does my, the fact that I don't mention that it has roots mean it doesn't have roots? 
The bush has components even if I don't say them all. Does that make sense? And a meaning can have components even if I don't say them all, just as long as I'm not contrary to the meaning. For example, if I start saying about a bush and I don't mention it has roots, but I mention, by the way, the bush has a trunk, then at that point I've confused a tree and a bush. Are we with each other? So we have a conflict. In other words, my meaning is nonsensical because I've in introduced into the type a trait that is not consistent with the type. I've introduced an element that doesn't fit into the meaning. Am I making sense? I'm, listening, I'm watching you guys very carefully. I'm trying to lay these ideas out very carefully to you. This kind of thinking clarifies and tones your thinking about interpretation. Since I was not thinking either of... Oh, oh this is one that he has. I, did I screw that up? I put these backwards. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to do this. Okay, I'm going to go backwards. An author almost always means more than he is aware of meaning since he cannot explicitly pay attention to all the aspects of his meaning. At the same time, it's very difficult in the head. I'm up here before you. It's very difficult to be thinking simultaneously. God does this, but simultaneously think of everything that relates to what I'm talking about at the same time. I have a sequence of thoughts, but it's hard to hold them all in, in, in absolute tandem. Right? We move one after the other. So I can't keep all of it there. So when I say something, I may not include everything. That is, it's there, but I can't explicitly pay attention to that now. Suppose I say in a casual talk with a friend, nothing pleases, and this is a quote from Hirsch, nothing pleases me so much as the third symphony of Beethoven. I wouldn't know or not. And my friend asked me, does it please you more than a swim in the sea on a hot day? And I reply, you take me too literally. I meant that no work of art pleases me more than Beethoven's third. How was my answer possible? How did I know that a swim in the sea did not fall under what I meant by things that please me? See, the friend says, oh, so what pleases you is you like Beethoven better than swimming. He said, well, those are different types. We're not talking about the same thing. It's like the bush and the tree. They're not discussing the same question, right? So I would say, what pleases me, he said, you misunderstood me. When I say pleases me, I have a certain idea in mind, my type meaning, which is different than your introduction of another type meaning, the difference between swimming and listening to Beethoven. Right? Now go back. Since I was not thinking either of a swim in the sea or Bruegel's hay gathering, some principle in my, I have no idea who these guys are, some principle in my meaning must cause it to exclude the first and include the second. This is possible because I meant a certain type of thing that pleases me, right? In his head, in my head right now, before I say something, I'm thinking of something different. The person who's listening to me cannot read my mind, right? So since they can't read my mind, they have to be told what I'm saying. But have you ever done this with persons? If a person says something, you say, uh, I don't quite understand. Did you mean this? And a person says, well, no, I actually meant this. Have you ever done that? It's because the minds can't get in tune apart from this verbiage, this linguistic stuff we're putting together, this thing I've talked about before. So we have to get our linguistic tunes together. 
right? I said this, you thought this, now I clarify it. You said, oh, now I understand. That's what we're talking about. That also occurs interpretation. This is possible because I meant a certain type of thing that pleases me and will all possible members belonging to that type. Even, for example, I'm including the, 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 uh, the, the roots, something else in that type, even if I don't say it. Even though a few of those possible members, that is these components, could have been attended to by me. Thus it is possible to will and etc. without in the least being aware of all the individual members that belong to this etc. But you know what happens? If you sit down and start thinking about it, you can start adding things to it that make better arguments, better sense, and it fits the same type meaning. It's just a further clarification and development of it. But it all continues to fit in the circle. Does that all make sense? So you have something you can say, well, I didn't mention this, all these components of my meaning, but now that I have some time, let me list them. Oh, and you didn't say any of those. No, no, but I meant them. See, I meant them. It's just that I didn't at one time think of all of them and say them all, but they are all the meaning that I'm talking about. We together? This all helps out. So, since I was... Okay, I've already done that. So we move to the issue of shareability. Shareability. I use the word private and public communication, or the private and public use of a word. If you create your own word and nobody else shares it with you, you can hold on to it, but it has no value in communication. The most important version of the Humpty Dumpty effect, very technical, is the one that Alice pointed out when somebody does, in fact, use a particular word, a sequence, his verbal meaning cannot be anything he might wish it to be. This very general restriction is in the single important one for the interpreter who always confronts a particular sequence of linguistic signs. That is, we all read books. We all listen to people talk. And our words get in sequence, and the words... Can you imagine? Our brains are so phenomenal. Can you realize, so as I'm talking to you right now, for most of us, as I'm saying something, you're actually deciphering the meaning of each of my words in a local context of that word. You know what? And you're constructing what is the verb, what is the object, even if you can't diagram it. You know that I'm putting things together and saying things, and each of these little comments I'm making are words that you hear immediately and understand. If something gets out of sequence or something gets lost in that, then you say, oh, uh, I didn't quite understand that. And now I have to clarify it. But that's why we do that. So here you have it. There's glory for you, said Humpty Dumpty. I don't know what you mean by glory, Alice said. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, till I tell you. Private meaning. Private meaning. I meant there's a nice, a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument. So Alice is working with shareability, public knowledge. Humpty Dumpty's working with non-shareability, private knowledge. See? Alice is saying, that's not how people use that concept. When I use the word Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words so many, mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. Well, the point of it is, if you're a master of your words and never share it, 
You can claim some kind of value to them, but they're not communicative. And thus they're not subject to discussion of meaning. Now, can a person understand the meaning of an author better than the author? <laughs> now, you hear people say that, you know, that I, so-and-so, I understand it better than he does or she does. A final argument leveled against the normative status of authorial meaning is that the author himself often doesn't know what he means. This is charges made against uh, in the postmodernistic argument sometimes that have been made. Although if you make that kind of argument, it doesn't make any sense because if the author never controls the meaning, it doesn't matter. I don't know. What is inadequate about this argument when Kant says he understands Plato better than himself? Kant says, I understand Plato better than Plato understood himself. Kant is actually referring to subject matter and having a greater understanding of the subject matter. That is, I know more about the topic than he does. But you can't know more than the meaning that he does. Let me go through it again. Kant's saying, I know more than Plato does about Plato's topic, his discussion area, his, his subject area. But he can't know more than Plato knows about his own meaning. So that's the issue, the, sub, the difference between subject matter and authorical meaning. Now, in the next area, we've talked about type meaning and traits and components and all these ideas, public-private knowledge, shareability, all these questions. Now, what is significance? Uh, Hirsch uses the word significance uh, in an interesting way, and it, it really becomes similar to our concept of application but not entirely, at least not in the way in which a lot of people use the word application. I'm going to define application differently for you, and actually I created a definition that I've never seen, but it's a, it's a good one. And uh, I, I've been listening to Trump too long. But anyway, the, the fact is that mine's greater. Now, <laughs> wonderful, yes. <laughs> okay. Now, the meaning of significance. What is significance? Names a relationship between a particular meaning and a person or a conception or a situation or indeed anything imaginable. That's the definition he gives. In regards to significance, Hirsch says, quote, Clearly what changes for them is not the meaning of the work, but rather their relationship to the meaning. Significance always implies a relationship. And one constant, unchanging pole of that relationship is what the text means. Failure to consider this simple and essential distinction has been the source of enormous confusion in hermeneutical theory. See, a person looks at it and says, well, I don't like what the person means, and so they, they have another meaning. But you can't have another meaning in what the person who says the words has. But you can differ as to how you relate to the meaning. You can accept it. Or reject it. Those are different relationships. You can think they were brilliant or stupid. Or whatever. You, how you relate to the meaning is a different question than what the meaning is. Okay? Now, meaning and significance in relationship to hermeneutics. Hirsch is engaged with a view of meaning called radical historicism. Under this view, whether in law, biblical studies, or literature in general... The judge, or exegete, or reader, determines the meaning. You have judges determining the meaning of the Constitution. 
what is it, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes or uh, somebody who said that the Constitution is what we say it is. I think it was him, could be someone else. But the Constitution is what we say it is. That is, we determine the meaning. And yet you look in the Constitution and say, where is that in there? Well, see, they have moved beyond the meaning to create their own meaning, not the meaning of the text. Now, you can change the significance and say, I read the meaning and don't like it. And because of that, I'm going to create a new meaning that they didn't mean. But you're not really interpreting the meaning. You're creating your own meaning. See, because you have a significance that's different. The founders liked it, you don't. So you create a new meaning based on significance. So, uh, the judge, biblical exegeter, reader, determines the meaning since meaning is dependent when the literature is read and the understanding comes from the individual at that time. That is, so I'm reading it now. I read that's 200 years old, sort of old, not applicable today. So I create another meaning than they had. You're actually rewriting a document is what you're doing. Those who hold this hermeneutical skepticism fail to recognize that such a view belies the ability of anyone to claim genuine knowledge or truth. If that's how we deal with meaning, then there's no meaning to be found. It just simply is transient and changes constantly in the mind of the person reading. Whereas significance is the way the author relates to his meaning, application is how the author connects his type meaning Here's the distinction now, because we talk a lot about application. Whereas significance is the way the author relates to his meaning. Who's the author? It would be who wrote it. But what about how I relate to the meaning? I may not like it or dislike it. Then I move to the question of application. How do I connect the type meaning to the same type meaning in another context not specifically stated by the author in his original statement. What I'm saying by that is that application ultimately is once I relate to the meaning of the author and the significance that may be found there, how then do I connect that meaning of the author to a contemporary setting and yet be at the same time consistent with the meaning of the author? Rather than creating a new meaning, how do I apply the real meaning of the text by the author to a new situation that maybe not be even envisioned by the author. Now this becomes a legal question. We deal with the issue of, of having things that are in the, in the law of stare decisis. Let the decision stand. The fact is we dealt with it here this way, so we have a new situation that comes before us, and they deal with what is something on point or not. Does the, does, do these two ideas seem to relate to the same question? All they're asking is a question I've talked about, do we have two type meanings that are the same? A new situation but have different components but are consistent with the others. Now, if they are inconsistent, disparate, then they don't share the same type meaning. But remember, I've said you can have a type meaning that is not stated with all of its components. And so you may have a variance between two views in which they share much in common that are the same and nothing that contradicts the other. Okay? So that's how legal decisions come down, hopefully. Um, so the type meaning is you want to move to another context. So we, when we, how do you apply Scripture? Here it is. Here's 
a short and long definition that I created. It's copyrighted at the bottom. <laughs> Application is the extension of the meaning of the text. It's not other than the meaning of the text. It's an extension of the meaning of the text in a consistent manner to a new situation in the life of the interpreter. The context of the interpreter is different from the original author, but is not disparate or contradictory or contrary to the meaning of the original text. Context, or a short definition, application is the extension of the meaning of the text to a different situation in life consistent with the type meaning of the text. Which means this, a true application is actually a put into practice of the actual meaning of the text. It's not other than the meaning, it is the meaning. But it's the meaning as it finds its way working in a new situation. I'll show you an example of this uh, tomorrow. I'll go in a whole passage. I'll develop on this question using these concepts I've just told you about. Purpose of application. Application using, is using our varied gifts to make the Word of God relevant to man so that a change in behavior results. That's the reason why we do this thing. Interpretation without application is as useless as application without proper interpretation. Application then, to continue the second statement, applications applying the meaning in a different setting, not coming up with a new meaning. You'll have people that apply Scripture and you say, how does that relate to the meaning? And it becomes a very broad usage of the term. You know, uh, uh, we're to avoid the very appearance of evil. What does that mean? What's the meaning? I'm not going to give it to you right now. But look at what the words mean. Check them out in the dictionary. What do the words mean? Avoid the very appearance of evil, which means, I, and when I was brought up, that means you're not to dance because it could look like evil. You're obviously not to smoke, not to drink anything, nothing like Jesus. You know, you, you are to, we had all sorts, we had a list of rules this long. We had a thing called advice to members. And it was pages and pages of advice. And when they meant advice, they meant rules. It wasn't advice, it was rules. So we had all sorts of advice that came out of the teaching of don't be worldly and stain the very appearance of evil. Well, we want to go back and find out what those passages actually mean to find out if those were proper applications of, those, of that meaning. <laughs> Can't take time to do that now. So... Rules of application, then, do not read for applications. You read for meaning. Decide the meaning intended by the author of the Scripture. Decide what aspects of the passage in question extend beyond the original setting, thus drawing a principle. Still have to be consistent with the meaning, though. Relate this principle to a specific area in your life. That's application, in my opinion. So, here we have this again to look at the idea of illustration of type meaning. Now, I'm going to show you how this works out. You've got the bush and the tree down. All right. Now, you can apply any number of things to that. But let me apply that to Galatians chapter 3. You ever read this passage? There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. 
By the way, the text doesn't actually say nor female. Paul deviates at that point and actually uses the term out of Genesis. There's neither male and female. The others are ors. This is and because he's basically quoting in the biblical text. Now, when you read this passage in Galatians 3 to try to understand what it means, you have to determine what is the type meaning. How would you do that? You look for what they call traits. What are the components of the meaning that are essential to the meaning? Not everything is essential. I mean, A's and these may not be. Discussions of lots of other topics in the passage might not be. But what is essential to the essence of what the apostle is saying in, in the chapter about the covenant with Abraham and being... The, because the point here in this passage is that in Galatians chapter 3 is that because there's neither... Uh, because of the Abrahamic covenant and faith, there are none of these things anymore. Now, was Paul so dumb to not know there were Jews and Greeks running around? He said, I'm Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he certainly did not mean there are no Jews. He means there's no Jew and Greek in reference to what I'm talking about. In another context of meaning, there were Jews and Greeks. But in the context of my type meaning, there are no Jews and Greeks. Go to another. Did Paul not, was he not aware there was slavery in the Roman Empire? He wrote a book dealing with it. So he certainly knew there was slavery. But that type meaning he's concerned about slavery and freedom are not relevant to questions. Because he said there's neither male nor, excuse me, there's neither uh, uh, Jew or Greek or slave or free. And then he says there's no male or female. That's a problem. See? <laughs> yeah, that, had, that, that enlightenment hadn't reached the apostle by this time. So the fact is that he's saying in reference to the type meaning I'm discussing, male and female are irrelevant to the discussion. Okay, you with me? In another context, on another subject, he would not say these things. You have to get his type. So you look for those components of the passage if you look at the passage, it talks about that we as Gentiles and Jews are both heirs to the Abrahamic covenant. We're both of the seed of Abraham. That we are sons of God, Jew and Gentile, sons of God. That was a problem once upon a time. Read the first chapter of Ephesians or so. First couple of chapters there. You know, the issue of male and female, obviously an issue. The point that Paul's making here is that in reference to our position by faith, we are sons of Abraham without considerations that are normally brought into play. That is your male-female, Jew-slave, or Jew-Greek and slave-free. Those are not relevant to the question of my participation in Abraham's covenant. And by the way, I don't think they get the whole, I don't think we as Gentiles get the whole covenant we are heirs to the covenant through Christ because we get the blessing of the blessing of the Gentiles in the Genesis 12 passage. But that's another subject. But he says we're part of this. Now, is he then, is the type meaning of equal functions in the church in discussion in Galatians 3? Read the whole passage. Look for the components. Do you see a component of that we equally function in the church as part of the components of the type meaning that Paul discusses. You won't find the discussion at all. It doesn't exist. That can't be part of the argument because he never talks about it. 
Now, what's the type meaning? Here it is. All people, apart from social distinctions and others, the things that people recognize in society, may participate in the Abrahamic covenant by faith. That is the capsulized teaching type meaning of the passage. He illustrates that by several means. But it is not that equality position in Christ requires interchangeability of roles in the church. It's simply not discussing it. I always tell people, if you believe that teaching, that's fine. Just go find a passage that teaches it and leave this one alone. I don't, you know, if you can find it, find it. We'll talk about it. But quit destroying this one. Because this passage doesn't discuss the question. Does that all make sense to you? This is the tree bush issue. It doesn't have a trunk. So this is a bush, not a tree. You with me? So, application. See, our oh, principle here. Uh, in regards to believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, there are no differences among groups of people. I think he says that. All have access to Christ. All have access to the Abrahamic covenant. We should offer the gospel to people of all races, sexes, religious views, economic classes, social strata, and etc. That's one of those etceteras. That is, there's more that could be said. Now, if you had asked Paul the Apostle, here's the question. If you were to ask Paul the Apostle at the time, Paul, you said that these social distinctions or these things we usually view as somehow divisive uh, don't relate to our participation in Abraham's covenant. But you only listed the Jew and the Greek and the slave and the free and the male and the female. Isn't there any, I mean, what about the different classes of, 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 uh, of social status and money? No, rich and poor doesn't matter either. What about whether I'm black and white? Doesn't make any difference. My point is that there are no considerations that you can come up with, and I haven't mentioned them all. He didn't list seven or eight pairs, but they were enough to give you the idea that these things, whatever you come up with, it doesn't any way impact the meaning I'm talking about. Does that come through? That's how we can take the Scripture, even today, and stay consistent with the meaning and yet come up with application that's not inconsistent with Scripture. Because I extend the meaning to a new situation. And it is then in Paul's mind he would have said it had you asked him. You with me? Okay, now. Okay, thank you. Let's talk about the process of literal interpretation. And I'm actually going to take some time today to, uh, to develop something about literal versus figurative language and so forth uh, before I started the other talk. But let's do this quickly, uh, just in case you're not familiar with it. Process of literal interpretation has several processes, processes. One is word meanings. There's what is called semantic distance linguistic, linguistically. You have the idea of it, that you, every word has a basal meaning. For example, if I say head... Or if I say uh, if I say house, or if I say a car, or if I say uh, or vehicle or whatever, if I say certain words, your mind will go immediately to a particular idea. That's the basal meaning. That is, I don't have to put adjectives with it to explain it far further. 
for you to understand me. If I talk about I, I went to my house, you're not thinking I'm, I'm talking about my dynasty. Although theoretically it could be if they were all gathered there for a meeting, I suppose. Uh, but, you know, you use words and without any further discussion, people know what they mean because that's the basic basal meaning. Does that make sense? Now, as you spread out from that basic meaning, then it becomes more and more tenuous. Okay? Words begin to get more fluid. If you look in dictionaries, uh, if you have a good thing, you have your basic meaning, and then you may have tangential meanings that occur later. And they use some that are used by, you know, that word's used for something. But uh, in certain words, like, for example, the statement hot dog, that means three things to me. It means something I can eat. It can be a statement of jubilation. Or it can be an animal that's really overworked. And, but the point of it is, we would have to understand in a context which one it is. See, context is important, which one it is. But a dictionary is going to give me the options, not the meaning. See, no dictionary gives you the meaning of a word. It gives you the meanings that are, that are shareable and public knowledge that people use it in. You know what I'm saying? It, it gives you words apart from context, and then you have to figure out the context for the words. That's what dictionaries do. So here you have the word head. Well, the first thing that people would normally think about here is the idea of a physical head. That's the word that is the basal meaning. When you say head, people think about, generally speaking, head, either of an animal or a human. But then also that word head came out to mean the word life in capital punishment. Or the physical head of, of a man or a I, I shouldn't have put that in there. I don't want it. Uh, extremity in top starting point, the head of something, like the head of a tower or whatever. Uh, it can mean a person of rank. The head of something is someone in charge, a ruler, a, a head, head of a family or head of a kingdom, whatever. It can mean the conclusion or main point of something, the head of the sentence. can mean a prominent part. You can have somebody who's the head of the class. You with me? So the word head has a basic meaning, but then it begins to spread out. But you'll not know what it means in, as it spreads out. You'll not know what it means unless you have other words that explain it enough to give you the distinction. Is that all together? This is how language works. So, even in statements like this, words don't have meaning in themselves. I can say God is love. That's the statement at the top. I can say a simple statement with a period. God is love, just a declarative statement. I can say God is love and mean something different than just saying God is love. Or I can say God is love and mean something different than saying God is love. I mean, I'm using the same words. God is love, I emphasize, or God is love and emphasize, or God is love and emphasize. Is God love and is love, is God, uh, is love God or is God love? The point of this, the same words can be used in different ways and you have to use what to understand it? A context to understand it. That's why that's so important. Words can be developed different ways. Uh, one, etymologically, historically, and contextually. I'm not going to take a lot of time here. Uh, but the point here is the fact that etymology means that you're looking at how the word came about. And how words come about is not the same thing as what words, how they're used. You can have words that historically came about by a certain 
form that are no longer used that way. Uh, for example, I use, in our church, <laughs> I'm going back to my childhood here, but I remember hearing a pastor preach one time about that those that are alive and remain, First Thessalonians 4, will not be able to keep those people that died in the grave. Well, it says, will not prevent them. Except that in 1611, pre meant before and venio meant to, to go. And so you're to go before. Well, they knew it in 1611 what it meant. But in 300 plus years, the word changed meanings totally. Nobody uses that word that way. They meant to, today we would translate it to go before or proceed, right? The word didn't change, the language changed. <laughs> okay? So you got to look at the etymology versus the That's true with the issue of the word church too, by the way. People misunderstand this. Any Southern Baptist in here, I apologize. Uh, before I get going here, because I'm thinking of Frank Stagg's theology where he misunderstands this. Church is from the word, the word church, C-H-U-R-C-H, is from the Greek word kuriakos. <coughs> That's where you get the word church. It also comes through, through a Scottish is kirke and so forth, relationship to this word. Belongs to the Lord, those who belong to the Lord. But, but, when we translate church, we don't translate it from Kyriakos, we translate it from ekklesia, which comes from two Greek words, ekkaleo, to call out of, which made perfectly good sense in the classical period. <coughs> That's how it's used in the classical period. To refer to the citizens of the, of the city, by the way, not all of them, not women folks and not slaves, but certain distinguished citizens who are men, could come together. And if you stand at Mars Hill, you can look down to your left and you can see where it all began, right there in front of you, where they met and decided city business. Well, at that time, those who were called out of the community to do the business of the city. That's how the word developed to begin with. But ecclesia which is the Greek Old Testament first translation of the Bible, remember, uh, that, in fact, they use the word ka'ah in Hebrew to refer to the word ekklesia. Okay? Or maybe I should say that just the opposite. Ekklesia related to ka'ah in the Hebrew, so when they put Greek ekklesia, when you read contextually, ekklesia means far more than being called out. It refers to the congregation of Yahweh that met together, even when they weren't meeting they were his congregation. They were his church, even when they weren't meeting. So the word has now changed meaning as it went from originally the Greek etymology to the usage in the Greek classical Greek period to the time of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you know, to the time of the New Testament. When Christ said, I'll build my church, he's not saying I'll build my called out ones, which doesn't mean it precludes being called, but it's the fact the word means something far more closer to the concept of the Hebrew idea than the classical Greek idea. And that's all I'm saying here. Well, then you have historical uses of the word. How is the word used historically? And if I had the time, which I don't, maybe we can deal this tomorrow if we have time. I'd love to develop this for you a little bit. But uh, the word pneumaticon. It occurs three times in Paul's 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. And one of the things I did in my article on this question that Robbie said he dealt with before is go back and check out this word in the, in the period of the first century and before. It is used outside the New Testament. 
And what I discovered is that the word pneumaticon uh, is a word used of individuals involved in various uh, uh, forms of uh, religious fervor and worship. And what you discover in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is that the Apostle Paul, he uses that word. And by the way, he uses it elsewhere. Pneumatikos is a spiritual man. It's a perfectly decent term in Romans, for example. It's not a bad thing. You have fleshly, right? You have fleshly people, sarkikos. You know, you have natural um, sukikos, and then you have the a spiritual person, right? That's Romans. We're talking about 1 Corinthians, not Romans. And in 1 Corinthians, he's talking to a different group of people. And he's talking to a group of people who use this word in their own religious background. Remember, these people didn't come from the Jewish community largely. They came from paganism, religious paganism, with all the accruements that come with that. Right? So he starts it off, now concerning, he says, you guys wrote about this, peride, now concerning the pneumaticon. What's he talking about? Well, King James translated spiritual with a parenthesis, uh, or with a italics, gifts. So you say, oh, he's talking about spiritual gifts. No, he's not at all. Totally off base. Uh, matter of fact, what he does in verse 3, he moves to the charisma tone of the church, which are spiritually given by the Spirit. He says it, to each one is given a certain gift, blah, blah, and he goes through the gifts of the Spirit. But the pneumaticone and the charisma tone are different words and different ideas altogether. Because when you look at 1 Corinthians, you find in 12 here, he used the word pneumaticone. What does it mean? It's a genitive case. Unfortunately, you can't now know whether it's spiritual men or people or spiritual things. We don't know which one it is exactly in that text, but probably uh, uh, it could refer probably in view of the context, probably spiritual things. But then he goes on to say that in, in chapter 14, when he says, if anyone is a pneumaticos or a prophet, let him know that what I speak to you are the words of the Lord. Hmm. 12 starts it off, 37 and 14, chapter 14 ends it. You have one other instance of the word, and the fact is it's contrasted repeatedly in the text with prophet and pneumaticos. No, actually it says tongue speaker. So a tongue speaker in 14, repeatedly contrasted with prophet, is then at the very end contrasted with prophet. But it doesn't say Speaker in tongues, it says pneumaticos, which fits in with chapter 12, where it says pneumaticon. But I want you to know that one who is actually, and the Lord actually uh, doesn't, uh, uh, is, is not like what your worship is previously when you went after voiceless idols, how you were led. And then he goes on to tell, in fact, you should have the gifts of grace from the Spirit. So I really believe that one can demonstrate reasonably right uh, I, I think it's a far better explanation than others, even if it's not conclusive, that the pneumaticos that Paul talks about follows the Greek practice, which I've seen outside the New Testament, of individuals who were carried away in their spiritual exercises. And Paul says, that's in the church, and so I'm going to give a bunch of rules. And after I give those rules, this thing's not going to work anymore. Or he's, he closed it down by rules. How many could speak? how often it had to be done. So anyway, people translate that, in my opinion, wrongly. Uh, but, you know, we can discuss that if you want. Uh, historical, you have comparative studies, for example, in Matthew and in Mark, you have one saying in, in his kingdom, the other says in his glory. Sometimes you do comparative studies to see what the words might mean. 
The kingdom relates to him coming in his glory, which I think is correct, by the way. In his second coming, does he not come in his kingdom? Ultimately, yes. Uh, then you also have cross-reference used at some time where you find out how words are used by uh, authors of the New Testament, sometimes with the same author, sometimes different, both conceptual and parallel verbal cross-references. Comparative studies of language is very important. Cultural usage, I'm going to actually talk about this tomorrow at pretty good length, so I'm not going to go into that about John 15. Here's an interesting thing. Paul and John used the word sarks. You're familiar with sarks, sarcophagus, eating up the flesh, the sarcos. So the fact is the word flesh. But for Paul, he sees it as more of a reference to the spiritual dimension of us, the sinful spiritual dimension of us, as it relates to the use of the instruments of the body. It's the flesh is operating in, in our physical self to do its deeds. So Paul tends to transfer it a little differently. John uses flesh to refer to this stuff out here, this fleshly stuff. John doesn't use it in reference to the spiritual sinful self. So you have to be careful. This is just one example. You have to be careful that authors of Scripture don't use the word faith the same way or the word flesh the same way or many other words the same way. You must read the authors for how they use their words, not how everybody else uses their words. And that's true in our contemporary language. Uh, it's not uncommon for people to use words differently. You just have to, but they're not private words. They are the alternatives in the dictionary. <laughs> you see? The dictionary doesn't give you a meaning. It gives you possibilities of meaning that are publicly used and shared in the culture. And then you pick the one that fits your context. So you have to read the authors carefully. Doing a basic word study, well, I, you probably know how to do that. But I put it up here anyway. The fact is, uh, I really think like Strong's Exhaustive Concordance is still very good for people who don't work in Greek. I think they're very good Bible study words in Greek and Hebrew that are available. Uh, Bill Mounts has both Hebrew and Greek on that. There are many others. I would encourage you to follow this process. You're going to have this in the video or the uh, slides later. Uh, okay, the process of literal interpretation. Well, you go through word meanings, then you have word relationships. Words are all pieces until you put them together. And so what you have to do is look at the different ways in which the author has constructed his words. And it makes a difference, by the way. It makes a lot of difference in Greek, <laughs> how you do your words. There's no absolute way you have to do it, but how you do it oftentimes discusses the question of emphasis. Uh, so putting words together, I encourage people to learn to diagram, but I know that's probably asking too much today. Words are like building blocks. Notice, the dog runs. What about the runs dog? Or runs the dog, that's his name. Runs, come here. Well, see, you don't know about this until you get an opportunity. It can mean the dog runs, or it could mean the water runs. That is, water is also something besides a dog that can run. But does water run in the same sense that a dog runs? Analogically, they have similarity, but they don't mean the same thing. That is, univocally, as we use the term, it would, they would have to be identical. But analogically, they can relate in a similar fashion. 
Dogs and trains and humans run in different ways. But we have the same word. So that's what I'm saying by the fact word relationships, we put words together and what words mean to make sense of them. Um, word relationships are important, like the word was God, you know, or, or, the, or God was the word or whatever, you know, how you phrase this. There's a whole issue of theology relating to some of these matters. Now, context, and you know the statement, a text without a context is only a pretext, and you know that one already. Immediate context is important. I'll never forget, I spoke to a group, and I did not know that they put this on their church bulletin every week. And I was given an example in a Bible class regarding the improper, non-contextual use of language. And I gave the example, this is talking about discipline in the church, not gathering together for fellowship. And it destroyed their whole sense of meaning. I, 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 you know, I think the church disbanded soon after that. So <laughs> you have to be careful when I come to a church what happens. I mean, I, I tend to just say things and, you know. Uh, context of books important, you know. We're going to talk about this one tomorrow. I'm not going to go into it. But Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12 has nothing whatsoever to do with losing salvation. Nothing. We'll talk about that. Also, we have context of the Bible, progression of revelation. We discussed that earlier, too. Uh, if you don't see these differences, then it leads you to replacement theology. Then you have con cultural context. I'll talk about this tomorrow, too. I'm glad to see i got these things I could put off till tomorrow. <laughs> But this is, I had to put this picture in. Uh, most assuredly, I see that he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way. If I go to Israel every year, I think Robbie probably does this too. If you can't go with him, I'd encourage you to come think about me. Uh, I've done it uh, for since 1996. I've just finished 31 times. I've written books on it. I know something about it. And so uh, I do some interesting tours if you want to look at that. I'm going in May. I'm looking for two more people for May. It's going to be a short group, and I'm just going to lead without a guide. We're going to have a lot of fun. It's just about eight or ten people. Most assuredly, I say to you, he does not enter the sheepfold. Well, see, I put Randy uh, Price's daughter there to demonstrate what shepherds used to do. They were the door to the sheepfold. You either have to get over the side where the brambles are or come right through the shepherd. And so that's what Je a quite straightforward statement, the door. Now, not a door like we think about, but a door of the functional door. Then historical context, the word covenant, I'm not going to go into this. You probably already know this one. But the fact that uh, uh, the Abrahamic covenant is, in fact, the concept of, of the text is understood historically. Uh, one of the, let's see, I've got another two minutes. Some applications are not so obvious whereas some are obvious. For example, who is a neighbor? And I came up in preaching this thing, the neighbor is one who is in need upon whom we, come to, who we chance to come. You don't seek out a neighbor, the neighbor comes across you. And it can be a lots of people. It's not just the guy on the other side of the fence. And Jesus' whole point here. Another example not so uh, obvious, uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 2 demonstrates that Christians are to have joy in servitude. That's a theme of the book. How do you have joy? you got people having all sorts of troubles and problems and sickness and death and, 
any number of things, and they all have joy for the same reason. They served. And Jesus himself did the same. Uh, So be specific. Well, I'm going to stop there, and we'll continue on later. Anybody have a question? <laughs> okay. I thought I made it plain. Going back, going back to something you were saying earlier from Edie Hirsch. Yeah. Uh, is, is there, and how would you explain it if there is, a distinction between application and implication of the text? And the reason I, I raise that as a, as a question, because... Second Chronicles, this is Tommy Ice's favorite passage because the way he handled it at Liberty University. Second Chronicles 7.14. Okay, God is speaking in a specific context to Solomon. And he's talking, if my people who are called by my name repent. Okay, my people all through, you know this, I know this, they may not. All the way through Chronicles, all the way through... Kings, my people refers to Jews. It doesn't refer to the United States or Germany or 